The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Now, I've got a news story for you that I think we've been waiting all of our lives to read. Are you ready? I'm intrigued. So it originally is from The Sun, but I read it when I was in New York on the New York Post, and I actually prefer the American take on it, so I'll read that one. Well-hung Brit claims his bulge was mistaken for shoplifted goods. This wasn't the type of package they thought he was hiding. A well-hung British man claims he was accused of shoplifting because his big bulge was mistaken for stolen goods stuffed down his pants. Steve Whitehurst, 47, said that he was confronted in a menswear store and finally had to expose his 10-inch penis to show that the only goods he was smuggling were his own. I had very tight jeans on that day, and there was a bulge, yes, but that's not illegal. I can't help the way I'm made, he told the UK paper of being stopped by suspicious staff with his girlfriend and 18-month-old grandson. Eventually, I dropped my trousers in front of everyone and just stood there in my boxer shorts and said, see, I've got nothing to hide. And his 18-month-old grandson. I know, I like that detail. How tight were his jeans for them to think he was shoplifting? Is there pictorial evidence? Let me see the picky. So the first picture is him and his boxers looking quite rightly, I would say, very pleased with himself. And the second picture is his girlfriend defiantly holding up a ruler against his crotch. In case you missed it, it has quite hilariously been picked up by a lot of news outlets this week. Wally Conran, the man who invented the Labradoodle in 1989, has said that he regrets creating the hybrid dog. He called it Frankenstein's monster. Broke my heart to a million pieces, seeing that headline. Of all the awful news stories last week... Was that the worst? It just tipped me over the edge. I find that the biggest majority are either crazy or have a hereditary problem, said Mr Conran, to which the president of the Australian Labradoodle Club of America... Yes, I know that's bizarre, but they really are called the Australian Labradoodle Club of America... replied, all dogs are crazy. I am inclined to agree with Wally. I've never knowingly met a calm Labradoodle. How many have you met? Three? Absolutely hundreds. You have not met hundreds? I have met more Labradoodles than single men in the last ten years. (laughs) I I absolutely have. I would put money on it. My favourites are Golden Doodles. Yeah, Golden Doodles. Anything with a noodle in, though, I do find them a a bit overly energetic. Even a poodle? Other than the poodle, weirdly, I think something weird happens. Well, that's what he said, the Frankenstein's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, yeah. And the big news in my household this week is that Devil Wears Prada the musical is coming. (laughs) It's opening in Chicago next year, and I have heard whispers about London in 2021, although I cannot see that confirmed anywhere. Uh, But my husband and I are chomping at the bit. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Pandora's husband is the Devil Wears Prada Biggest fan, I would say. Biggest fan. In other joyous news, did you see the Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury at the Labour conference last week? I have not. I'm absolutely obsessed with Emily Thornbury and I'm even more obsessed with her after seeing this clip of her speech. It was quite literally Emily Thornbury live at the Apollo. Conference. It's great to be back here in Brighton. And to be frank, it's great to be here at all. 
<laughs> when I got knocked off my bike by a black cab in July, I was lying in a gutter near Westminster Central Hall after my head had crashed into the pavement and my life was flashing before my eyes. On which note, I'd say, incidentally, don't knock it till you tried it. There were a couple of moments from my youth that I'd forgotten about where I thought, ooh, <laughs> blimey, <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't running through fields a week, comrades. <laughs> so funnier than anything I've ever seen on Live at the Apollo. Speaking of clips, did you see the speech by Greta Thunberg at the UN Global Climate Action Summit in New York last week? I did. I, I found it very, very moving. It moved me to tears. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet... You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? Of course, for every person like me moved to tears, there was a critic who believes that Greta is a mute vessel for manipulative adults. Did you see all this across Twitter? I did, and I thought it was horrific. I thought India Knight hit the nail on the head when she tweeted that she thinks that so much discomfort around her, particularly from a certain type of middle-aged man, is that she doesn't smile and grin and acquiesce Mm. and we're so used to young women being accommodating and sweet and smiley and I think what India said is that she's just not she's just not going to do it which is one of the reasons she's so so powerful as a spokesperson and also as well because of her aspergers which she has spoken about before um as meaning that she facially communicates differently Mm. and she actually acknowledges as well that a lot of the criticism is about um, how she looks or how her face moves. And she, you know, she says, I have Asperger's. And, mm. um, and when people are picking apart your appearance, it shows that they've got nothing else to come at you for. It's very and interesting the way she talks about it. And also on the subject of appearance, I think it was Sophie Wilkinson who said that we're so used to looking at teenage girls through... Actors sexu- and models through a male sexual gaze, which is the sad and grim and perverted truth of it. And there's we cannot do that with this person. One woman tweeted me that the planet has always been changing, and that we all know that climate change isn't really a thing. Which is a really strange view that seems to persist. A very established right wing commentator in the states called Mark Dice called her a brat, which I found so hilarious and moronic. Just just the choice of words. Surely the definition of a brat is a kid who shouts at their parents and steals their car, not gives a speech at the UN summit for mm. climate change. Mm. So I responded to him stupidly. I can't even remember what I said, but I think probably something like. God, you're such a moron. Did um, you get in a Twitter brawl? Actually? No, no, because he didn't reply to me. I don't normally, but I just I was thought it was going to say. But then I had to block so many people who were obviously looking at his replies and it was so depressing. And one of the most interesting things to me is that because it was all about obviously how she is a puppet, basically. And something that I find so interesting is that she's the same age as Shamima Begum was when she joined ISIS. And so we're meant to think that Greta Thunberg is being manipulated and has no agency, but that Shamima was an evil terrorist of yeah. completely sound mind. Did you see uh, uh, what Trump had to say about uh, Greta Thunberg? Oh, God, no. What did he say? I stopped he... following him. Did you? Yeah. Self-care, mate. Well done. I was told it was an act of resistance. Yeah. So oh, yeah, I like that. Someone said that on Twitter, so I stopped following him. Uh, he said something incredibly... Um, 
patronising. Like she seems like a a very sweet and and lovely young girl. Did he say cool passing? It was something, it was something like that. And then I and then I saw the next day on Twitter she changed her bio to that, which I loved. I mean, she's a smart cookie. Whatever these climate change deniers think. All hail Greta. Another really moving interview in the last week was with Sally Challen for Sky News. Earlier this year, Sally was cleared for killing her husband, Richard, in 2010 after years of coercive control and emotional abuse. The case set a precedent for victims of emotional abuse, i.e. a case that doesn't involve or rarely involves physical attack and is instead based on sustained manipulation and control. Mental abuse is the most difficult thing to um, explain to people. I think that over the years, mine was like a drip feed coming at me, and it came to a crescendo at the end. Um, it's something that makes you question your own mind. Um, Richard did rape me. He did drag me down the stairs and throw me out of his flat once. You don't know how to get out of it because you're so conditioned to being with that person, you can't see a life without them. Also in the news, a story that I found very interesting. Top psychologists have said that obesity is not a choice and making people feel ashamed results only in them feeling worse about themselves. The report calls for changes in language to reduce stigma, such as saying a person with obesity rather than an obese person. And it says health professionals should be trained to talk about weight loss in a more supportive way. The people who are most likely to be in unhealthy weight are those who have a high genetic risk of developing obesity and whose lives are also shaped by work, school and social environments that promote overeating and inactivity, it says. People who live in deprived areas often experience high levels of stress, including major life challenges and trauma. Often their neighbourhoods offer few opportunities and incentives for physical activity and options for accessing affordable healthy food are limited. Psychological experiences also play a big role, the report says, with up to half of adults attending specialist obesity services having experienced difficulties in childhood. Stress caused by fat shaming by public health campaigns, GPs, nurses and policymakers often lead to increased eating and more weight gain. I just think this is such an important story and marks a really hopeful change. Over the last few years, my mind has really begun to turn on to what fat phobia actually is and where it is and where it is in our language and our humour and how it manifests in less obvious ways other than just abuse that that we've Mm -hmm. been taught to spot. And uh, quite honestly, it's something I still have a huge amount to learn about and I still get wrong sometimes. And I think uh, it's because it's so, so deeply ingrained uh, within me, this phobia that, that I wasn't even aware I had. And I think understanding that obesity is something totally separate to willpower, questions of, you know, morality or inertia or laziness, I think that's just so crucial to change uh, our marginalisation of fat people in the way that we talk about, the way we talk about weight. And to acknowledge the multiplicity of factors. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so socio-economic for starters so talking about it like it's a level playing field yeah a million and different reasons and actually that was something that that is something that uh the authors of is butter a carb the dietitians that we had on earlier this summer rosie saunt and helen west um believe in really strongly and they've written kind of several 
mm. open letters about um, ad campaigns where obesity is presented as like a homogenous thing. Mm. So, for example, I think there was one earlier this year by the NHS about how obesity causes cancer. Yeah. So they re- they joined a letter about the how misleading that is as a statement. So yeah. I'm sure they'll be very pleased to hear um, this development. Let us end on a light bite of celebrity news. Demi Moore's autobiography, Inside Out, is out. And it is sizzling. Sizzling, eh? From what I have observed. I haven't read it. She reveals that her and her ex-husband, Ashton Kutcher, had threesomes, that he encouraged her to break her 20-year sobriety. She alleges that he said that alcoholism is not a real thing. That she felt ashamed after he tweeted a picture of her white underwear-clad bottom in 2009. I remember that picture. I remember. He was like this weird Twitter pioneer, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. He made a lot of money out of Twitter. I read a whole book on it. That's (laughs) That's another day. And that she was codependent on him in a way that she never had been in a relationship. She says that they are still friendly, but do not chat. Although one wonders if that is still the case in light of recent literary revelations. Do they say who the threesomes were with? No, but maybe if you read the books, you might. <laughs> What's in the mailbag this week, doll? A listener called Rosie wrote in about the discussion on houseplants. Uh, we talked about a beautiful piece in the LRB last week about the psychological effect of keeping houseplants. And she talks about how this interest in them long predates millennials outrageous she wrote her dissertation on pub interiors which i think <laughs> sounds so brilliant and found that house plants were used in order to control people's behavior within these public spaces since victorian times pot plants in working class homes were a symbol of respectability being able to look after a plant was a sign of a family's and more specifically a woman's respectability one would put their pot plant in the window of their front room for the rest of their neighbors to see It showed that the lady of the house could keep a tidy and reputable home environment and led a sober and responsible life. The link to pubs is that pot plants were put in the parlour, the best room, of English pubs during the interwar years to distinguish it as a room where women could enter and drink respectably. The domestic association of the pot plant would remind anyone entering that this was a respectable area of the pub. Any man entering would have to wear a tie and blazer and speak in polite tones and restrain from vulgar topics which were spoken elsewhere in the vault or public bar. It was the parlour where you would take your mother or wife on a Sunday afternoon – all this control from a pot plant. I absolutely love uh, this piece of history that you've shared with us. And it also makes me feel great about having lots of plants in my window as a signifier of my respectability and sobriety. What have you been reading and watching this week, Panda? I was blown away, as I know many people have been, by Unbelievable, which is a new show on Netflix about a series of rapes. The series starts with Marie, played by Caitlin Diva from Booksmart, an 18-year-old living in a Seattle suburb called Linwood, reporting her rape. Inconsistencies arise in her story and in the face of interrogation by two male detectives who tell her that if she fails a lie detector test, she will go to prison. She ends up recanting her claim, saying that she lied. The fallout for this vulnerable young woman who grew up in foster care and has only recently moved into a living facility, which assists foster kids in living independently, is deeply painful to observe. Um, She's left with no one believing her and she's charged for um, wasting police time with a a false claim. Uh, One can only imagine, as it's so painful to watch, what it was like to endure aged 18 after everything she'd been through. The next episode is 
breathtaking in its contrast. In Colorado, a 26-year-old woman reports a rape to a gentle, sensitive female detective played by the absolutely brilliant Merritt Weaver, who reminds her that inconsistencies or forgotten details are common in times of trauma. Mm. It's literally total opposite to the first episode. And the series then unfolds across other rape cases as this female detective teams up with another female detective from a different division, played equally brilliantly by Tony Collette. And they start looking into rape cases across all the other towns. So they all have different police forces. They basically work out that this serial rapist has been uh, committing rapes where there's different police forces. Right. And they don't tend to talk. Yeah. So they didn't realise... Um, and they realise that they're looking for... A serial rapist. Um, the series was inspired by a 2015 article by ProPublica called An Unbelievable Story of Rape by T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong, which won a Pulitzer. I recommend watching the series first and then reading the article. I don't normally recommend it that way around. I only do so in this case because the article will give you all the info at once. So you would lose a lot of the power of the dramatic unfolding of the series. Um, But the article is equally heartbreaking. You know, it starts with no one came to court with her that day except her public defender. And it's kind of impossible to sort of talk about the series without giving away that what these two women discover is that this girl who everyone had thought had lied about her rape was actually raped by mm-hmm. the serial rapist um and that is a big part of the series as well and it is sort of impossible to i mean it's quite obvious by the fact that you know it's an eight-part series that it might be that she is not lying but the co-author of the article ken armstrong devoted a twitter thread to the series last week to me marie is not a character she's someone who trusted me with her story painful as it was marie is now a long-haul truck driver happily married with two young children although she wants to remain anonymous marie is her middle name um ken armstrong praised the series and the showrunner Susanna Grant who he noted and I think this is such a powerful line and it is so true of the story wanted to capture how an investigation can become its own form of trauma Mm. Um, I think it's a really interesting premise it's one I haven't really seen investigated televisually before and the contrast of how these two cases are dealt with is really powerful and I don't want to get sort of too gendered about it like oh the women were really sensitive and the men were really callous um I'm sure that is not always the case in rape cases but in the case of this true story that was how it was and the 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 male detectives who basically forced her into saying that she was lying have said that they there have now been kind of nationwide changes that will mean that they will never ever make this mistake again um they have been very outspoken about the fact that they really, really messed messed up. Mm. Although, understandably, that doesn't mean that much to Marie, who actually sues the state and um, wins. It's also really important to remember that only 5% of rape claims um, get thrown out. It is so, so rare for someone to be lying Because as about you rape. say, that, that investigation process, the trauma within itself, I've just started reading Chanel Miller's book... And she says something akin to, you know, investigation, trial and verdict is, it feels along the way, the most impossible and unreachable and arduous and long-winded and horrific thing 
Why would anyone choose to put themselves through that voluntarily? I think something in this piece that they wrote that I think was so interesting is what they realised too late is that they should spend as much time and put as much commitment into proving that someone is lying than they are telling about the truth. Yes, exactly. So it shouldn't be that you, you know, that you default. Um, but I think it's just made so much more poignant by the fact that she had had such a hard life and she was finally in this place where she felt she was free. Mm. She was living on her own and she had a job um, that she really liked at Costco and she had friends and she lost absolutely everything. Mm. You know, two of her previous foster mothers who thank goodness, are still really formative presences in her life. But they they didn't believe her. You know, it, it, she was so kind of traumatised by what the detectives made her feel about herself that it became impossible for her to convince anyone otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think as well there's this really interesting thing, and actually this can be said for very different scenario, don't worry, I know, but I think this can be said for when we're talking about the Amanda Knox case is this idea that we respond the same way to things. Mm. Um, obviously, in Amanda Knox's case, it was finding out that her roommate had been murdered. It's very different to being raped. But this idea that women, when facing any kind of challenge or trauma, will be very sad and very quiet, rather than um, hysterical or angry or inappropriate, mm. um, which were all things that could be applied to Marie's behaviour. Mm. Um, but I'm yet to talk to anyone who hasn't just been completely blown away by it and even me talking about it now even if you don't go to the series blind it's still riveting so brilliantly acted um and everyone has been talking about how psyched they are about the politician but i think unbelievable takes the uh autumn 2019 netflix crown i will definitely be watching that yeah it's really powerful and i have been really enjoying dipping back into a book of essays and short stories called The Opposite of Loneliness by Marina Keegan that was published in 2012. I love that book. Oh, did you read it when it first mm, came out as well? I I think I read it in a day. So beautiful. And and just... I mean, it's, it's an utterly beautiful book, even if the circumstances around it didn't exist. But when you know the circumstances around it as well, it just it becomes even more poignant. I recommend rereading it now, actually. Now yeah, I was that, really young when I read it. Yeah, because it, so it came out seven years ago. That was kind of the beginning of this writing, I yeah. suppose. Um, so it was really, really good to read it again. So Marina Keegan was a um, young Yale graduate who was tragically killed five days after she graduated. And she was um, tremendously talented by all accounts. She'd been Harold Bloom, the literary critic, Harold Bloom's assistant at Yale. She had a job waiting for her at the New Yorker. She'd already published several pieces of non-fiction. So posthumously, her family and friends put together this mixture of essays and short stories, of which she was only... She must have been 2021, I think, when she wrote them. They are so considered and wry for a woman so young. Her writing style her writing style is really assertive. When you're reading, it doesn't feel like you're reading the essays of a young woman trying trying these on for size. Like it's she is so sure of what she wants to achieve with her writing. And there were a few that really blew me away second time round. I loved the one about a student falling in love for the first time and observing how her own romance dovetails with her mother's marital difficulties. 
Her own security contrasts so poignantly with her mother's aloneness. But the story isn't told emotionally. It's very sparing. It's almost kind of cruelly absent, mm. I would say, of, of emotion for the um, mother. Like, the daughter can see what her mother's going through, but she's kind of not able to reach her, or it's too much for her to try and reach her mother. And it begins and ends with her mother walking alone at night with their dog, which I just, I loved. I thought that circularity was really simple, but re- worked really well. And then there's another about a woman who's dating someone quite casually but then he dies suddenly and she finds that her role has become elevated in his death yes. and she's sort of having to pretend that you know they weren't hooking up with other people and that she really loved him and she's put in this quite odd position of hanging out with his family who she'd never met before and then she discovers his diary and she becomes obsessed with his relationship with his ex-girlfriend who he broke up with just before they started dating and Again, it's so unique and perceptive and uncomfortably truthful. Marina seems to not be scared of confronting uncomfortable truths, both about herself and her fictional characters. And you just can't imagine what she'd be writing now if she was writing those age 20. I remember her depictions of studenthood were particularly evocative. So that's, interestingly, those were the ones I loved the most when yeah. I read it first. Yeah. And reading it now, maybe just because I love short stories, I probably didn't read that many short stories when I first read that. Reading it now, I I liked the one of Studenthood, but those were the ones that seemed maybe a bit more gauche and the yeah. short stories just really stood the test of time. Yeah, I wonder what my relationship would be with it now because I remember that was the thing that really inspired me when I read it because I felt like she really captured the kind of all the grimness and the glory of of being a student and do you know what else I always remember about that book there's a prologue there's a note at the beginning I can't remember who it's written by someone who worked with her or was close with her it's written by one of her tutors that's it and I remember it said that her boyfriend was driving the car when the car crashed uh, he fell asleep at the wheel, didn't he? And she, 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 so he survived, and obviously she died. And I remember the tutor said that he went straight to the parents' house, and they welcomed him in with open arms and forgiveness. It yeah, just... because they said the last thing Marina would want is for him to suffer more than he already would be. I just remember thinking that it was such an extraordinary act of humanity. It's lovely that for that prologue from mm. the um, tutor because. It's, it doesn't do that thing when someone dies tragically and or at a young age of kind of deifying them. Yes, so she's I saying, remember that. She says eulogise in yeah, a sort of way. Yeah. She says, Marina, if you were looking for an easy ride, Marina was not it. Yeah. You know, she was. Yeah. She could be combative. She interrupted. She was passionate. Things really annoyed her. Um, you really get a sense of the woman. Thank you for reminding me of that beautiful book. I'm going to go find it on my shelf again. Anything else you've been enjoying? Hold on to your knickers, Dolly. I have a podcast recommendation. Oh, wow. For Avaya, my best friend, The Rewatchables. Do you know that? No, maybe you're Shiver me timbers. more of a podcast than I am. I can't believe I found one you haven't heard of. It's an American podcast series about films where they unpick movies and forensic details. Oh, love that. Yeah, you'd love that. I listened to the one on Mean Girls. Which is absolutely brilliant. And there's so many fun facts in it, like Rachel McAdams originally tried out to be Katie and Lindsay Lohan really wanted to be Regina George. It's so funny, isn't it, how Mean Girls, very quickly with time, has converted into this, like, seminal litmus test of a piece of culture to, to gauge and understand millennials. It's like... 
so iconic for our generation already people talk about it like it's the fucking godfather trilogy me and my best friend were talking about this the other day and we think it's actually more powerful now than it was in 2004 yeah and actually how many things can you say that about that it takes on new meaning with age and that it was tina fey just did such a brilliant job and you i think you'd really like the kind of different sections they have so they have like um bits about what has aged the worst so, yeah. like, the jokes in it that have aged the worst. Yeah. Uh, what stands the test of time. Um, whether or not someone is on their apex mountain whilst making that film. So, Lindsay Lohan, they say that is her peak. Yeah, yeah. And that they had thought she would be, like, the next... I think they said Jodie Foster. Um, do you know what? I think there's time for her yet. Do you? I do think They are not have... convinced on that. Oh, I think she will. I think she'll have another wave. So, next on my list is the Devil Wears Prada one. <laughs> of course. But you'd love it. There's, like, over 200 of them. And then they have a separate series on Luminary, which is specifically dedicated to films from 1999. And you're also, you've also got Luminary, so God, you can get... what a good find. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Lucy. I can't believe I've impressed Dolly <laughs> with my podcattiness. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, though? I loved Nell Frizzell on Autumn Dawns for The Guardian, which was masterfully written and a... Keatsian ode to the ephemeral joys of autumn, which is my favourite season. She flags that this is our last couple of weeks of longer days before sunrise creeps in later and later and talks about uh, the kind of natural human magnetism towards the certain light and certain stillness and certain space of the dawn and why the dawn is used metaphorically so much in religion and what a potent time of the day for a human life it it is i will quote her instead of describing her because it really is such a stunning piece of writing and this is also a reminder to read everything that nell writes we continuously mention her work on the show because she really is such a unique writer i think and she covers a huge range of topics from uh childbirth to outdoor swimming and you can follow her but not outdoor childbirth <laughs> not uh, do you know what knowing Nell, i think that could be the next one uh you can follow her uh on twitter at Nell frizzell with two z's and two l's i'm writing from experience here i am not just crepuscular but matutinal as an aside crepuscular is one of my favorite words it's a really good one <laughs> one who glories in the dawn Thanks to a young son who would rather read about the technicalities of anthropomorphised steam engines at 5am rather than, oh, I don't know, get a humane amount of sleep, I see a lot of sunrises. During July and August, there is something quite strange about getting to 9am, as everybody else's day is just grinding into gear and realising that not only have you already been up for four hours, but the sun is now high in the sky, wasps are shagging on top of fallen plums, and the milk on your doorstep will have lost its beads of condensation. The glimmerings of dawn or aurora fill us with an energy quite unknown to the 3.30pm crisps and caffeine desperation of our afternoons, while even the language of twilight is beautiful. Who can resist the whispering hint of possibility in words such as dusk, gloaming, dimmit and eventide? Sundown, dim day and nightfall all have a melancholic poetry to them that lunch and even tea time cannot muster. So whether you are matutinal like me or vespertine like the moth, take heart this week in the loss of daylight. Cheer on the drawing in of night. Winter is going to be hell, of course, but at least we get a daily light show to ease us into our misery. I learnt so many new words through that. I know, that. I know. Beautiful piece. And some it? of the Hilo's critics are going to be furious when we start <laughs> trying to shoehorn a few of Nell's words into our conversation. I like this podcast, but they use too many bloody words. Gloaming is a great one. I'm not surprised you love that piece because... 
you're not always continuous in the things that you love. You tend to be absolutely obsessed by <laughs> very many things. But when it comes to autumn, you are actually a broken record. Yeah, I know. Knee-high boots and berets. Can't wait for you to trot out the same old <laughs> cliches about... No, do you know what? I can't. I've, I've done that piece dry now, sadly. I've rung it for all it's worth. <laughs> How many times have you written it? I think I've written it 12 times. I think I've written it every autumn since I've been a journalist. <laughs> I want to flag a new lifesaver of a podcast called The Open Ears Project. That's such a lovely name. I know, I love that name. Which is the genius creation of broadcaster, author and friend of the Hilos, Clemmie Burton-Hill. It's from New York Public Radio, where Clemmie is the creative director, and it is described as part mixtape, part sonic love letter. The Open Ears Project is a daily podcast in which people share the classical track that means the most to them and why. Each episode offers a brief and soulful glimpse into other human lives, helping us to hear this music and each other differently. Guests from the worlds of film, books, dance, comedy and fashion, as well as firefighters, taxi drivers and teachers, share cherished musical memories and remind us that extraordinary things can happen when we simply stop and listen. I cannot recommend this enough as a daily practice, almost a daily practice of meditation and taking stock it's just an audio treat all of them are 15 minutes or under and they begin with um a kind of monologue from the person and then they play the full piece afterwards and that's all some of them are nine minutes some of them are 14 minutes and they are open insightful and they talk about the person speaking talks about an important moment of their life or an important part of who they are relating to a piece of classical music i find them so soothing and calming and they're also a great way of discovering classical music where i'm woefully a philistine and they're sort of like a digestible daily desert island discs i want to play two short clips from two of my favorite episodes so far the first aminatu so speaking about how a piece by Florence Price comforted her through cancer diagnosis. And for Desert Island Disc fans, they'll also note that it's a disc chosen by Sandy Toxvig for her Desert Island Discs and is a really uplifting piece of music. And the second clip that I want to play is from Eddie Izzard's episode, who chose Claire de Lune. Oh, I know. So um, as it was a piece of music that he turned to when his mother died when he was young. And he describes the sensory experience that he has when he listens to this music time and time again in the most gorgeous way. And it really just imprinted on my brain that day. I was like, this is the mood. This is the mood we are going for. Everybody else is borderline tears. They're whispering to you. They don't know what to tell you. Because I was very excited. I was like, oh my God, let me tell you. I finally have a, I have a thing that I know what it is. It's cancer. It's great. And uh, people don't like to hear that. It was like, Jupa dance. It just became the background to illness for me. There was something really spiritual about it. And I am not a very spiritual person. So it is very strange to me that I heard that. I heard religion and comfort. And, uh, and resilience immediately. And I heard exactly what I needed to hear. It just keeps moving. Um, it actually takes you off the ground.
If you listen to it, you are floating in the clouds, which doesn't make logical sense, but that's how it feels like. I think it keeps you in a place that, that takes you out of everyday life. So anything that elevates you is going to be good for anyone. comes from Stripe and Stair. Stripe and Stair have been called the most comfortable knickers in the world. I have three pairs of them and I have to say I do know that I'm in for a comfortably sheathed jacksy on the days that I pull them out from the knicker drawer. Stripe and Stair knickers don't ride up so there's no more hungry bum. This is a well-documented affliction of mine. I even wrote an entire article about it once (laughs) so I'm always happy to hear of anti-hungry bum undergarments. They're so comfortable you forget you're wearing them leaving you free to take on the day. Can I tell you a secret, Dolly? I was wearing a pair this morning. Why aren't you any more? Because I like to feel loosey-goosey and easy-breezy for the high-low record. (laughs) Every pair of Stripe and Stare is a pair of guilt-free ninnies because (laughs) they are sustainably sourced. Only 2% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty shocking for a product that we all wear every day, unless you're a real dame, in which case... Hola! (laughs) I take both my hat and my knickers off to you. (laughs) Stripe and Stair knickers are sourced from beechwood trees and are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production and give no VPL as they lie perfectly flat against the skin. Stripe and Stair have been a hit with the press, having been recently described by the Evening Standard as insanely cool and described by the Telegraph Stella as the comfiest knickers around. Pandora Sykes describes them as the knickers I wear every day. And no, I was not paid to say that. Hilo listeners can get 20% off their knickknacks by using the code Hilo on www.stripeandstare.com at the checkout. They're also available at Selfridges and on shopbop.com for international listeners. Many thanks to Stripe and Stare, both from us and our bottoms. Our guest this week is Amru Alkadi. They are a writer, performer and filmmaker, a self-described professional unicorn and queer Iraqi non-binary Brit. The Cambridge graduate has written and directed four short films and is an established and much adored drag performer and the creator of musical comedy drag troupe Denim, which has received rave reviews from The Guardian and Scotsman and performed two sellout shows at the Soho Theatre. Now they have written their first glittering, quite literally, debut, Unicorn, a painful, jubilant, enlightening and defiant memoir that has been praised by Joanna Lumley, Ian McKellen and Russell T Davies. Amru, welcome to the High Low. Oh, thank you for having me. Describe in your own words your hilarious and moving book and how you came to write it. Um, I think the book is about trying to sublimate or kind of turn trauma into glitter or kind of mm, figuring out a way to sort of translate pain into joy Mm. which I think is actually the queer or drag experience like drag queens are often so uplifting and so joyous but it's coming from a place of like a real wound and I wanted a book that kind of really just relayed the queer experience and how kind of even like in the face of so much trauma or oppression, queer people can respond with such sort of valiant 
just sort of defiance. You know, your own experiences are a bit like a hand on your face, and it's quite hard to sometimes tell what's happened in your life. And the whole book was like, as I was writing, I was like, God, I can't believe that happened. I, you know, so many memories were coming back writing it. And so it was a real act of catharsis as well. I've really noticed my mental health improve since finishing it. And I love the idea of you unclamping the Mm. hand from your face the more you write about your story. The book pivots around identity and your journey to negotiate an identity for yourself in Dubai, Bahrain and later the UK in a family and faith that considers homosexuality a crime. As a child, a family friend tells you that two men who are kissing should be shot dead, whilst your father makes it clear to you that you will never be gay, it is impossible. You write that it caused a sense of self severed in two. What did this feel like to be forced at every turn to abandon not just who you wanted to be but who you knew that you were I really wanted to be very honest about mental health in this book um and I then you know I devote a whole chapter to OCD and how because my self-worth was being so damaged by what I was being told I developed really crazily compulsive behaviors in order to prove to people and myself that I wasn't so if I got anything less than 100% in any exam like that that was so bad but in a way it's odd it's given me so much drive as well all that negativity because like I just had to get out and I just had to make my own life for myself so I can't say I'm appreciative of it but I do it's given me stuff that I am appreciative of Delving into intersectionality, what it means and how it shapes you personally is a recurring theme of the book. Near the beginning, you say, As someone who's always existed between cultures, classes, genders and racial groups, I have what society deems an intersectional identity. The concept of intersectionality refers to the fact we cannot study the issues surrounding one oppressed social group without understanding its intersections with many others. For instance, it is superficial to have a feminism that dismantles systems of misogyny without also understanding how this intersects with structures of racism. I think for a lot of people who want to be progressive or who are getting their heads around being progressive, the concept of intersectionality and these kind of separate layers of um, oppression and pain and marginalisation and struggle, how they specifically coexist and what those specific experiences are like, I think for some reason that it's very difficult for people to often get their heads around. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's a kind of defensiveness or do you think it's just a, an, an unwillingness to learn about others' experiences? Or a fear? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think what it is, is a lot of social groups. So if, I, if we maybe talk about, let's say, the issues that a lot of women suffer you know misogyny let's say so if we're talking about misogyny if there's a, a a social group of people who've suffered misogyny and that is really really painful and as a result what you can sometimes see is maybe a lot of white women who are reluctant to maybe open up to trans women or maybe women of color because having been so threatened already it's almost like you get this defense mechanism i see this a lot with gay men as well white gay men it's like it's been such a struggle for them to come out and live as gay that they almost feel like I've done my fight. Mm. And then it's like, wait, you want me to 
and then you know this is why you have a real at the moment Islamophobia among gay men is really really rife because and a third of married gay men in Paris actually voted for Marie Le Pen because of her rhetoric that you know Muslims would come and take gay civil liberties away so what you actually see is the right saying you've got your space now you can exist in society quite successfully do you really want to open up to this other social group so i think that's where the the people who don't want to allow intersectionality to really flourish as like you know a way to dismantle oppression i think that's where it comes from it's like ah oh, i've got my thing now and i've got a space and i don't want to open up anymore so it comes out because it feels finite progress feels finite and and a bit sort of febrile and I don't want it to go Mm, you know and this is what I see with a lot of gay men who are just like quite closed to you know closed to immigration let's say because they're a bit like no I'm in the UK safely now and I don't want anyone to take it away it's obviously all in mythology and the right wing you know press does propagate a lot of that mythology so I think that's why sometimes it doesn't happen and also I think a lot of people have so many struggles just within their one social group that the idea of that existing between like several maybe doesn't I do think everyone does in a way kind of actually have an intersectional experience it's obviously much harshly highlighted in mine um and I also think the word is a little bit misleading because people talk about intersectionality as this sort of fluid thing where race intersects with gender and gender intersects with this and that's completely right but actually a lot of people who are affected by intersectional issues they're not experiencing them all at the same time it's like within an arab group i'll experience much more homophobia let's say than in my daily life but then in my daily life i'll experience a lot more racism because i'm in the uk it felt quite separate actually the way you wrote about it it felt like you were shifting through paradigms almost Mm. where you were facing and learning about different issues you know when you were young in dubai and Bahrain, that the all primary issue was sexuality yes exactly and then when you moved to the uk suddenly actually you, you say that you were really free to be yourself at school and actually you were excelling at school. It was at home mm. that then you... Mm. So it do, you really go on a journey with you, I think, to really learn about, like you say, these aren't all happening at the same time, although sometimes they can be, but that in terms of growing up, it was a real education mm. as to just confronting another part of your identity that you hadn't really externalised before. Yeah, I, I, that's something that I... Yeah, I, actually writing the book... It was very much like, wow, (laughs) my identity changed so dependent on the space that I was Mm. operating in. And actually, when I think about it, it's like, what bit of your identity do you have to sacrifice to have success in a certain social space? So like in my house, I just obviously did everything I could to closet my sexuality. But actually, at school sometimes, I would be really, really camp because people would like me that way, but would pretend I wasn't a person of colour and would have a posh accent just to kind of get them off my back there. And it's like, both of those are problems mm-hmm. because there, there is a, you're not allowing both of your sides to coexist. And that is where I think the mental health issues come in and this sort of almost identity dysphoria and sense of displacement. Because you actually are like, who am I? Because it just just changes. And you actually whore some bits of your identity out when necessary. And I talk about this when I when I got did a scholarship to Eton and the boys were getting so homophobic there. And because it was such a white school, I just 
basically became an Islamophobe just to get me off the hook. So I just kind of told everybody, oh, yeah, no, Islam's horrible. I was abused. And I wasn't physically abused or anything. I mean, emotionally I was. But so it's also just like what bits you sort of push in order to have an easier time somewhere, which I do think everyone does. I don't think it's just me. Everyone code switches a little bit, but this is obviously a really extreme form of code switching as survival. Mm. You know, it, it wasn't. it's not about code switching so that you fit in better somewhere or you have better opportunity. It was code switching because you couldn't see any other way of navigating your present existence. Mm. And I, I also, at one point when I was literally wanting to be a white person, tried to smash my nose and make it straight just because I was like, I need to do something. At Cambridge, you begin your journey as a drag performer. Glamru is born. And <laughs> you expect the drag world to be a million miles away from the world which you'd been born into. And yet, as your book begins, there's this incredible story in Edinburgh, I think mm, it was, yeah. where six Muslim women sitting on the front are sitting on the front row. And you feel almost sick, convinced that they're coming to tell you off or berate you or condemn you but then they come and see you afterwards and they tell you that they love the show how did that feel those two worlds that had felt forever separate to you colliding in um you know this really poignant moment yeah I mean it was so it was almost like the worst thing that could happen was presented in front of me like it was like I had, you know, for me, had learned to compartmentalize mm. stuff. And, you know, I could put my race in that box and my family in that box. And drag for me, you know, at that point was like the opposite to my family and my upbringing. And, you know, it was almost like this is my place where I can explore my queer side, but not all my sides, but definitely my queer side. And I had a lot of safety in like in that drag setting i know i am in charge of my queer side and nothing else will interrupt that and as soon as like these sort of avatars of my childhood were all in the front row it was like the secret's out because they know what i'm really like and what i've cuz you know with drag you're so powerful and you're so acerbic and if anyone says anything at you you just bite their head off in a really you know hopefully witty way and that power was so precious to me because I'd never really had that outside of drag. So all of a sudden it was like, uh-oh, these sort of avatars of my family are, are they can they know this is all a lie because they know what my childhood was like. And it was just a very interesting experience because I genuinely thought it was a disaster. Like it was a disaster. Well, I mean, I screwed the whole performance up, you know, I just kept tripping, I kept I cried, you know, I just didn't know what... I mean, and my agent who watched it, bless her, I think she was like, wow, is my client, like, going through an exorcism right now? Like, because I just was... Mm. And no one really got what was going on. But it was it was very interesting for me because how almost Islamophobic of myself for me to think that they had all come to Edinburgh, bought front row tickets, queued to get, you know... And stayed the whole time. Like, if they weren't enjoying it, they would have left. So that was kind of like, oh, my own feelings about my own childhood have warped how I see, like, every Arab and Muslim person I see ever. And actually, it's way more nuanced. Mm. And they all really resonated with the show because they were saying to me as 
Muslim women from Saudi Arabia, they they feel a great deal of you know oppression, and for them to see like an Arab person just sort of speak their truth, they found that to be very like inspiring. I was like, wow, that that was kind of crazy. It's a beautiful and very unexpected moment because you go backstage and I think you say that you are immediately sick in a bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just out of sheer kind of anxiety. And then they're waiting for you afterwards and you're convinced, as Pandora said, that, that you're about to get kind of told off. Well, I think they were going to say, like, you know, because in, in my speech I talk about Islamic sin. So what I did in the show was, like, in Islam, when you do sins, you get bad points on your left shoulder and good points on your right. So I did a whole skit about me trying to break up with my boyfriend, but I didn't, and it was like, it was Allah. And I was like, I'd be like, oh, he was like so crazy. He wanted me in bed five times a day, which is like five times prayer. I was like, like with Ramadan, I was like, oh God, he starves me every month for a year. So like I'm skinny for his Insta. Like I was doing all that. And then like, I literally sang him like a... like a breakup so like I get so emotional and I was like you know so and then within the thing I go to a mosque and it becomes a chemsex party and it was just like here were like six Saudi Muslim women fully covered up so so I just thought they're gonna go why the hell are you saying this about our religion and our god and the youngest wasn't the youngest was like oh god I feel you babe like some of the shit that, you know, I, I feel so... But she was like, you know, but Allah loves you, she said. It was very, very moving. Really unexpected, I think, for everyone, actually. But your book is definitely a, a renegotiation of your religion as well and how you feel about a religion which you grew up in that feel felt very oppressive, but then you find sort of solace and belonging in Sufism, mm-hmm. which is a mystical branch of Islam. And you now feel like that kind of is really part of your identity as a drag performer as well yeah so this is how i kind of explain it to people which is that like being raised muslim it is just part of my neurology you know this idea that there is sort of like god who's watching you and you you need to be a good person you need to have good morals so that is just there in my dna whether i like it or not um, and for most of my life, it was in it was it was the neurology of it was very bad. It was like you're being punished. You're being punished. You know he's watching you. He's punishing you. you. You know even every time during sex, like get out of here. You're not allowed to be doing that. So it's just there, whether I like it or not. And in that kind of mental health way, where you just rather than just go, you know, you don't with mental health with CBT. It's really bad to go. I'm not going to in, engage with this. You sort of go, oh, there you are not right now you know you kind of have to weirdly become friends with your anxiety and so I kind of just made a decision I was like well if God or Allah is just there whether or not I actually believe in Allah in like a in a real sense I was like I have to change my relationship with it Mm. um and link and after that Edinburgh night where actually the most love I'd ever got was from these Muslim people I linked up with this group called London Queer Muslims went to their Sufiist prayer groups and found this kind of really alternative genealogy of, of Islam, which had nothing to do with the very specific sect that not even my parents enforced on me, my school enforced on me growing up. And actually that has made Allah a more like benevolent force. So it's, it's more just like a changing, um, it's almost like a, I, I almost think about Allah as sort of mental health, like 
self-punishment or self-love and mm-hmm. I can kind of choose. And what's something quite interesting I find about Islam, and this is why I, I think I never became like suicidal or fully became self-destructive. I mean, I had a phase, you know, a bit of a drug dependency phase, but I think the reason overall I've stayed, you know, I work quite hard and I like, I try and do good or whatever is because in Islam, even the devil is like a fallen angel. And even this, the people, the angel counting sins on your left shoulder is still an angel. It's not like an actual evil force. It's, it's sort of like, these good things that have gone bad. Mm. And I think there is just like a kernel of something inside of me that believes I'm good. And I actually do think that comes from Islam. It's been clouded by a lot of shit. But I think I do trust the fact that I'm not, like I'm not a fully self-destructive person. I mean, I have some bad habits, but don't we all? Don't we all? The slow healing of that splintered self is something that you describe beautifully in the book. I particularly love the passages in which you really study the nature of drag performance and what it offers its performance, both psychologically as well as creatively. Do you ever contemplate an existence where that may not have opened up to you? And what do you think your life would have been like had you not found that space to to explore yourself? Wow, I've never been asked that. It's such a good question. Um, I don't know. I honestly just don't know what my life would have been like. In a way, because the thing is with the drag is because it because it broke so many rules with my family, with everything. It almost it like it forced me out of absolutely everything that I was raised in. And it almost was almost like a, it was like a kind of sledgehammer to like everything I was taught. And then I could kind of just start again. And it's brought me everything. It's brought me like my job, but my friends, my drag family, my, my whole outlet. So I actually don't know what I would be doing now. I think I would have probably been an academic and like sat in a room like reading queer theory and just sort of writing essays about artists I liked. And I've probably had a very happy existence that way. I mean, the problem is, is I really, if I don't, whenever my parents say like, why the hell do you do all this stuff? It makes us so angry. I'm like, I honestly think if I didn't, things would be really wrong with me. Yeah. I Like I really, it has to come out. Do my, they still say that now? They do. Like, I speak to my mum. Will they read the book? I don't know, you know. I actually don't know. I don't know if they'd get past page fucking one without... <laughs> I mean, it's very, very honest. Yeah. So it would be confronting for them to read, I imagine. So with our culture in the Middle East, Iraqi... We're, we're Iraqi, but you just don't question your parents at all. Yeah. Like... It's quite odd. We, you know, us Middle Eastern families, we find British families quite alien. You know, my parents would be like, you know, I saw these 14-year-old British girls go on the bus, like, on their own. Like, it's child abuse. That's literally, like, because, you know, family is, like, everything and everyone, you know, you do what your parents say. And they'd be like, you know, I saw, like, this child just sort of walking alone. And I thought, this is not okay. I'm just like that's literally just 
normal you know but like so and so and we also interestingly find the treatment of the elderly in britain bizarre because like the older you get in the middle east the more, more you know yeah, what, we need that's the same with yeah. but it's only i think western culture that has this really dismissive attitude towards because we're all about youth people. and capitalism totally. and individualism yeah. and no but that's something that both of us feel pretty conflicted about so and do i because my mum says to me like you have my mum always just says to me you have to be a millionaire because which is not going to happen, but she was just like... You need to look because, after me. Like, when I get old, you're not putting me in a fucking care home, you're buying me a mansion and a, and a servant. <laughs> That's literally like... I like that that is very in keeping with your mum, who at one point you aside... Because you do paint, even amongst, you know, the the real difficulties that you had with your parents, you do paint them as totally individuals in their own right. Oh. And, at, and at one point you say that your mum... Uh, you mentioned she's got this Bauman dress, but she's only worn it once because she only wears everything once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just loved that. Or another time you talk about her, you know, her Botox lips. Like, yeah. she's just this, she's like, glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you sort of like her? I did. And I, I think that you write about her with fairness. I really do, which is why I think it would be such a shame if, if they didn't read it, your parents, because I'm sure it would be incredibly troubling and upsetting to read, but... There's so much love there as mm, well. There is love. And especially as well, because it's incredibly interesting the way you and your twin brother, who only really comes into the narrative at the end, but like in a really lovely mm. way where he fully accepts you. Your father raised your brother, even though your parents were together and your, and your mother raised you. And there is this, and you and you write about kind of the claustrophobia of your relationship with her, but in a way where you didn't know how to exist without mm. it. And that period that you went through where the only thing that could calm you down was holding onto her leg. Mm. So she would offer you her leg to hold. Kind the of under to, bit of her thigh to just... To use jiggle. As a, use as a stress ball. Yeah, and that is so uh, that is so <laughs> specific and intimate, that bit of knowledge. But I think it's what you get from reading the books, particularly as, <clears throat> you know, two women who obviously grew up incredibly differently to this, is this sense that she felt very trapped by the world she existed in as well but it just she couldn't understand why you were challenging it that was just not something she would do yeah yeah that's a really good way of putting it I think with like it's interesting writing a book and to do it well you have to treat all the characters quite fairly yeah and like so my mum just couldn't be through my own perspective obviously it is through my perspective but to actually go okay what are your three-dimensional desires and wants that don't necessarily have anything to do with me and actually writing it you know I think what I learned about my mum was she didn't question anything growing up because it was cold and it's pre-internet pre you know you just didn't question anything you know you just did what your older generation did the idea of even going to therapy my mum is like what she's like the idea that you have your own shit that like is different to what your parents taught you. So, like, I think she hasn't questioned any of it. And then suddenly she had a child who questioned absolutely everything, which is really, really not... It's really taboo. And instead of her embracing it, I think she went, well, if I've had to follow this my whole life... Yeah. What, I think it reflected on her in a way that made her... Uncomfortable. Yeah, and she projected outwards and went... Well, you're the problem here. Because actually the real problem was the thing that was also keeping her having to really subscribe to notions of, you know, being a good mother. And, you know, because for her, whenever I was, you know, a picture of me came out in drag, she got all the flack for being a bad mother. And also in the Quran, the mother goes to hell 
if your child goes to hell because you've been a bad mother. Debatable interpretations, but it does get pushed, that interpretation. So, like, you know, for her, I think she just is like, you're really fucking this up for me, actually. (laughs) And... And she didn't question any of it. So I and and then I sensed quite a lot of envy later on in my yeah, life. Yeah, near the end of the book, you go for lunch and um, you haven't spoken for six months. And you say to her, "Do you like my outfit?" And she says, "No, but I can tell you're happy in it." And that feels like a really mm. momentous bit. But she says, "You know, um, listen, I've gone through so much shit." She's like, "No one ever listens to me. I've never been allowed my own opinion. I've been treated like shit by everyone." You know, what, like you say, what what makes you feel like you get to step away from mm. this? I think, I think that's, that's the heartbreak of it, to be honest. It's too, I don't know whether this is also something that just happens with age, but I think the older you get, the harder it is to just admit that maybe you took the wrong path. Like, yeah. you know, in your 20s or 30s, you know, if something really is starting, you going, you can go, okay, well, I can change my direction here. But I think when you're nearing 60... You get more dogmatic yeah. as well. You get more solidified in your views and the way you live. Like, alternative lives are just not something you... Well, yeah, the older generation can be a bit like, we've done it. The tragic thing is, is if I wasn't her son, I think we'd be best friends. Yeah. Because she always only has gay hairdressers. She is so queer. I always had this joke with a friend that, like, if I was in a gay club in drag and she came to... In her Balmain dress. Yeah, in her Balmain dress. And she came to be like, come home. She'd probably walk in and all the gays would be like, yes, bitch. <laughs> and she'd be like, what's going on? And then she'd be like... And people are like, you know, bring me my son. And they'd be like, yes, we will. And you are iconic. You know, I want to think that would, would be what would happen. Because she's so melodramatic. When you... she's um, a star of the book, to be honest. <laughs> that's, a lo- that's a lovely thing to say. Um, I think one of the things I was most impressed by in the book, because it must have been, I think, quite hard to write about, is you're really frank about the fact that when you arrive, quote unquote, in this world that you've dreamed of, you know, you and your friend Oliver at school dreaming about this kind of future queer life um, where you can be who you want to be. You arrive in this world and it's not necessarily the freedom that you expect because a lot of your sexual experiences have included abuse at the hands of other men. At boarding school, you lose your virginity to a fellow student who sexually humiliates a rotation of boys whilst pretending to be straight, which is a, I mean, a horrible, horrible story and when you graduate and move to London you're raped by an Arab man who you meet on Grinder. how was it not only experience but revisiting the fact that this kind of dream life was mm. actually also quite nightmarish at times yeah that was all quite I actually did develop quite a lot of latent rage at those people writing it I actually hadn't thought about them until I was writing it and then I was like oh my god I'm so mad at those people um, but at the time, you know, and I, this sounds, I don't, I don't understand problematic because I have spoken to other kind of survivors, you know, I just thought, yeah, this makes sense. You know, you've, cause your self-worth is so bad mm. that the experience is actually affirming what you think you know about yourself or what you think about yourself. So it's not like, I can't believe this happened. You're like, yeah, well. I was lucky enough to be in bed with somebody who wanted to touch me and fine. Like, so, so the late, the kind of latent sort of like, oh, I think that was a bad dynamic. That was new because I didn't experience that so much at the time because at the time I was like, ah, that's me. 
you know, my self-worth was so bad that I felt lucky that anyone would want to have sex with me. And do you think as well, kind of that conflict and complication was almost part of how you expected these experiences to be? Because you say that quite a lot of the time you went for straight men Mm. or you went for men who were, had this sort of internalised homophobia, like... Mm. At one point, you're like, why can't I just go for, like, a really nice, straightforward guy? And you you lament on these relationships that you let go because they were just too... Too nice. Straightforward, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, I think a lot of people hopefully can relate to that. But I think the thing with, like, core beliefs you have about yourself, I think when you really believe something about yourself and something comes along even if it's a good thing, that doesn't match up to what you feel about yourself. It does feel quite strange. So if you really think like, oh, I'm worthless, and someone's like, hey, you are great. I'm really, you, there's a bit of you that's like, the, the jig is up here. Like, what? how have you been so duped into thinking this about me? And it can make you feel almost like, ugh, this is not, I'm not into this. When you should probably engage because it's really good for you. But then when someone who's that like, really horrible to you you're like, it weirdly is oddly comforting because you're like, yeah, okay. It's self-affirming. Yeah, it affirms. So then yeah. you kind of are like, that's what you're into. Yeah. You really have to try and break that. You've put that so eloquently. And as you said, I just think so many people can relate to that kind of dynamic that you just revisit over and over again. Because that's it makes sense to you, The right? sabotage as well, that yeah. it makes sense to what you've experienced. Do, do you feel like you've reached a place of... Cont- <laughs> not to tie everything up with a neat little bow... <laughs> And to eradicate any subsequent memoirs, but do you feel like you've reached a place of semi or even contentment with um, who you are and how you want to move through the world? Yeah, I, I think, I do think I'm in a much better place than where I was, like, even in my early 20s. Um, yeah, in a way, I think just putting it all out there has almost relieved me of some of it. Because also... By just putting it all out there, the secret literally is out the bag. So I don't have to carry it around anymore, which has always been my real, you know. Most people, until quite recently, would always find it surprising if I was ever upset. Because they're like, oh, you're always just so confident and happy. And I'm like, actually, I'm quite like, just read the book. You'll know we don't have to talk about it. And maybe then. So I don't know. I do feel better. I do. I mean, there are a lot of obviously deficits. (laughs) We'll see. Now to find a husband, not even a husband, a boyfriend. Will you be folding some of the memoir into any future performances that you do? Yeah, I'm doing um, a solo show that starts next year. We're just figuring out the venue at the moment. We're hoping Soho Theatre called Glamrue from Quran to Queen. Love that. And it's sort of... So in Islam, you have five prayers a day. So this show is basically like five separate prayers and each different prayer is a different love song to Allah from like a... Uh, wow, we're kind of obsessed with each other to like, oh my God, why do you hate me? To I'm breaking up with you to like, look who I'm fucking now, Biarch. And then like, actually, let's get back together, but keep it open. So it's very subtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cue the fatwa. Amru, we loved your book so much. Oh. And we know that everyone else who reads it will love it too. Unicorn is published by Fourth Estate and is available to buy from tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening to The Highlight. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com. And where can you find us on Twitter, Dolly? You can find us at The Highlight Show. 
We also need your yarns. Spin us your yarns. We have our first live show of the Hilo Experience happening at the Barbican next week and we're very excited about it. Kicking off our four date tour and as part of the show we want to hear your stories, your best stories about life, love, family, friends, whatever you want. Funny, moving, painful, maybe a little bit gross but only a little bit, 1% gross. Uh, we would like to hear them and we want to include them in our show. So email them at thehiloshow at gmail.com. And sadly, all tickets are sold out to all dates other than Manchester. There are a few left in Manchester. So be sure to go to fameproductions.com forward slash hilo to catch us live for one night only. One night only. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Bye. Skepta and Adele are dating. How weird. Who is Skepta? He won. Did he win the Mercury a couple of years ago? Fame Productions. Why do I not know this? I can't answer that. Is there a Bond film called Skepta? Okay, found it. Skepta. Okay, Bane. I kept seeing it and I thought everyone was talking about the Bond film. Right.